Welcome to episode 230 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and I'm here for another round of discussion on Tokyo Mirage Sessions that Wii U RPG developed by Atlas uh, that's had a recent Switch port. I've recently played it on the Switch, and my co-host, Nathan Lee, recently reviewed it on the Switch. Hello, Nathan. Hello, everyone. How's it going? So, Nathan, you were a big fan of this game already, and the play that you did for review on the Switch was your third or fourth playthrough. Is that Am I remembering this correctly? Fourth. So you're a big fan, and this is my first time playing the game, and I'm going to say it right out of the gate, this game is really fun. I had a great time. Um, the My playtime was in the 45 to 50 hour range. I didn't do all of the end game content, but I did, uh, but I did do all of the side quests, and I really just had a good time. This is a game with good writing, good characters, and really solid RPG mechanics. So uh, whenever I whenever I make a complaint or it seems like I'm uh, I'm hating on something, please understand it with me having an underlying enjoyment because I, I think this is a good video game and I, I know that you also think it's it's good because obviously you've played it several times. But uh, when you did the replay for on the Switch, what were maybe one or two things that you either noticed that felt uh, that, that you noticed liking in particular or felt like the, these are one of the strengths I would mention when recommending this game to others? It, it's certainly the best version you can, you can play. Like the Wii version, Wii U version, there's certainly not much of a point in going back. So everything about this game is faster. So including from like the quick session attacks, which you can do by pressing the button instead of having to watch all the animations. You can, can switch out Itsuki after New Game Plus. I would have liked to try that, but I, I didn't really go into the new game plus at all. All animations are just, there's no longer any more lag, so everything just works better in this version, so there's definitely a version to pick up if you want to play Tokyo Mario Sessions. Not that, like, I'm asking anyone to go back and buy a Wii U for this game, but... <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, I, I was I was thinking really outside of just the port issue. Like, like what do you think is a highlight of this game? That when you, if you were just recommending either version of TMS to people... Like, what would be one of the selling points? Like, like, what's one of the good things about this RPG? Easily the best part is just its battle system. It's easily the mm-hmm. best part. The way how, like, it's, it has the traditional Atlas formula of you need to find weaknesses and then exploit weaknesses. But I find the way that they do it is so stylish and just overall just fun to play through the entire game with. Like, it's not, never, never gets boring, the system. Yeah, I, I uh, basically agree. The... Battle system is really satisfying to pull off to pull off long combos. Um, when when your characters start having several session skills that you learn over time by uh, by equipping weapons and learning weapons from, uh, learning skills from weapons, you know Final Fantasy IX style, and you start getting those session skills stacked up, you get to chains of um, of eight or nine per session, which can multiply if you uh, if you randomly get a, a duet skill. Duo art. Yeah, duo art. That's it. So I got 18, 16 or 18 hit combos many times and once a 24 hit combo. And it's incredibly satisfying to see the damage stack up and see the numbers stack up. And, and that's only sort of the end result of a good move. Um, but, but you're right. Like the, the, this is a stylish version of Atlas combat that is, you know, not exactly the same as Persona or SMT combat. It has a, uh, they have their own wrinkles and differences being surrounded by an audience and having, you know, giant, um, jumbotrons of your character's faces as you switch them in and out. That's just very, very, um, 
just very fun and sort of celebratory. Like, like combat, they want combat to feel like a performance and to feel flashy and fun. And uh, I think they basically pulled it off. Like you mentioned, uh, the Switch version allows you to speed up combat by um, cutting out uh, session animations and just has better load times in general. I mean, at least personally, I've only played the Switch version. It felt crisp and fast moving for turn-based combat, which is an ideal for me. Like, I I like RPGs with turn-based combat, and with turn-based combat, feels like it's not wasting my time is a major, major highlight. I think that's something that's really good about the Persona games, and uh, definitely also true of Tokyo Mirage Sessions. So I'm, I'm in agreement with you. This is good combat. You know, let's stay on the combat wagon a little bit. Um, did you have a favorite team or a favorite kind of setup that you would use? Like, like uh, let's say you're in the last or second to last dungeon of the game, and you just want to you just want to kick a little bit of ass. You're not trying to level up certain characters or uh, or or whatnot. Like like, what's a team you like rolling with? Uh, if I want to just like just have fun and just like blow through enemies. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, my standard team would be Itsuki, Subasa, and Mamori. Mm-hmm. This, this way, my team is almost unkillable because Mamori and Subasa are both healers. And I guess if I really want to like just absolutely destroy enemies, I probably switch to Toma. And then Kyria, if we really want to like wipe the four enemies. Yeah, I mean, none of the characters in this game are bad. They're, all of them are capable of good offense and defense. But um, my favorite team, I think I might have mentioned this last episode also, is probably uh, Mamori and Toma. Um, that gives you a full weapon triangle of sword, lance, and axe. Good elemental diversity. Um, Toma just hits like an absolute truck, and Mamori uh, has random cover and just incredibly high defense. It's hard to kill and deals a lot of damage. And if I were to switch someone out, Mamori has a little bit of a low hit rate, so that can be a little frustrating to deal with. I would sometimes switch her out for either Kyria or Yashiro. I think um his uh, counter mechanics are almost as good defensively as uh, as Mamori's covering, and uh, and he's just a really good offensive character with a lot of different elemental attacks. Even though he overlaps swords with uh, with Itsuki. We didn't really talk about Yashiro last uh, last episode. Yashiro is the final character that joins your party, and he joins right in between chapters four and five. Um, his Mirage is Navar, which is the first Myrmidon Swordmaster character in the Fire Emblem series, back from Shadow Dragon. He's a bit of an aloof cool boy. You, you meet him very early. I think you see a concert in between Prologue and Chapter 1, or maybe during Chapter 1. He does a duet concert with Kyria, and um, he's just a consummate professional who's an extremely skilled actor and singer, but he has an incredibly serious attitude. He's like Everything he does is for the perfection of his art, and at first he looks down on Itsuki and everyone and others for being rookies or not as dedicated as he is, but he, he develops a begrudging respect for them. And, uh, and eventually learns to, you know, realize the, the real potential of, of the other people on the, uh, in Fortuna talent agency. And him changing talent agencies is a, uh, uh, is a bit of a twist. He, he joins the team rather suddenly after being a villain for part of the game. He, he's, he works with evil mirages and is, uh, the final boss of chapter four is him and another mirage. But uh, if, if you try attacking Yashiro, he'll automatically counter and really mess you up. So you have to basically just focus on the other enemy, and once you defeat the evil Mirage, Yashiro leaves. So what did you think of Yashiro's character? Um, in, in the Japanese entertainment industry, changing talent agencies is very, very rare. Uh, individual talents are sort of looked at more like assets than people a lot of the time. And if someone changes talent agencies, that's sometimes uh, surrounding a scandal or a talent agency dropping someone, But it, which is not the case for Yashiro. But like, like I mean, there, there was even news when there was a rumor of a famous boy band, SMAP, leaving Johnny's, a famous talent agency, that they had to do a public televised apology for it after the rumor got spread. Talent agency politics are weird in, in real life. So, so Yashiro joins the team very 
suddenly and randomly, but it's uh, with, you know, the player knowing that it's so that he can work with the team to defeat the uh, evil mirage issue that's plaguing Tokyo. Uh, before they got to the whole part where he talks about how uh, his his dad was, was taken away by mirages and then, and then gets killed after. Uh, before that, that entire point, I thought Yashiro was going to be almost like like uh, like like a mole in the uh, in your system, like almost like someone who's out to betray you after. Oh yeah, you, you, like but like you thought he was gonna join it before chapter five and betray during chapter six or something. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, but I, I like Yasho as a character. He's he's his interactions with a lot with a lot of the party members are pretty funny. When uh, especially. His side stories. Oh, his side his stories are one, hilarious. His first ones are like hilarious. <laughs> you remember Mamori, uh, and this is directed to listeners and not Nathan. Nathan definitely already knows this. Mamori hosts a children's television show about cooking with a microwave, and Yashiro joins her for an episode, even dressing up in an apron and everything, and and does uh, a, like a goofy a goofy cooking bit with her. But earlier in the side story. <laughs> you learned that he had, hadn't eaten in three or four days because he uh, had fired his personal assistant and had just forgotten to eat. Because <laughs> he only eat. <laughs> there wasn't any time in his schedule for him to eat, so he, he just he, didn't eat. He eats only for sustenance and not because and not because he, he loves it or uh, or 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 needs to. So in some very weird dialogue choices, you have to sort of teach him the joy of eating and then have him go on this cooking show with Mamori. And it's uh, <laughs> it's the first really lighthearted moment with Yashiro because every everything up to that point is him go like. Looking down on Itsuki, it's like, huh, you're not, you're, you're not, uh, talented enough to hang with, to hang with me, and, uh, you, like, you're just gonna get yourself killed if you keep fighting mirages this way. And then, and then a complete left turn with his, uh, with his side stories, allowing him to let his hair down a little bit. Um, his final side story, he is in the same tokusatsu show, Kamen Rider Oga, as, uh, as Toma, and he gets to play an evil mad scientist villain. And so you see him ham it up with a, uh, um, during a duo art with Toma, that's, uh, which I enjoyed a lot, of course, me being, me being who I am. But there's two things I want to branch off from this discussion. First, uh, side stories, which we will definitely get to. But um, before then, we mentioned that Yashiro, you first fight him as the part of the boss of Chapter 4, and then he joins you shortly after. That um, fits the Navarre archetype a little bit. Uh, uh, Fire Emblem games dating back to 1990 have character archetypes, where they're like types of characters recur and almost appear in every single Fire Emblem game. Like one of the most famous ones is the Jagan. Uh, Jagan is a paladin in Fire Emblem 1 who joins you and he's way higher level than everyone else. And he sort of babysits your party and can take hits for your party to, um, just to like save them from the, uh, from the early difficulties of the game. And, uh, other Jagan characters are like, uh, Marcus in Fire Emblem 6 and 7, Titania in Path of Radiance, uh, Frederick in, uh, Awakening. Yeah, Frederick in Awakening, Seth in Sacred Stones. Like, there, there's, there's a Jagan in basically every Fire Emblem game. And, um, Navarre is another one of those tropes or archetypes dating from Fire Emblem 1. Almost every Fire Emblem game has a swordsman character that starts as an enemy, but is recruitable if you um, get a certain character, usually the main character, but not, not always, uh, to sort of talk to them and negotiate with them instead of fighting them. But, of course, not ac- not attacking them and accidentally killing them. And then that character will uh, can be recruited to your side. It's almost always a Myrmidon or Mercenary. You know, there's variations of this over the years, too, of course. But uh, it was Navarre in Fire Emblem 1... There's a guy in Fire Emblem 7, uh, I'm trying to think of others, uh, Marissa in Fire Emblem Sacred Stones, uh, Lonku in Fire Emblem Awakening. All these are these sort of Navarre archetype characters. And Yashiro is exactly one of those. He's a swordsman who you start at, starts out as an enemy, but then after negotiation and, and, uh, and, dis- and some dialogue will join your party. 
Now, uh, re- recruiting characters in Fire Emblem is not the same as recruiting characters in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, but uh, every character in Tokyo Mirage Sessions does fit an archetype of some kind. Every Fire Emblem game gives you at least two cavaliers, usually a red one and a green one, and uh, that are sort of your stalwart cavalry for the whole game, and Toma is exactly one of those. Every Fire Emblem game has uh, has a female Pegasus knight that joins you, and also some dragon riding characters, and uh, and that's exactly what Tsubasa is. Every character in this game fits a Fire Emblem archetype, and we, we mentioned this in the last episode a little bit, but maybe not this um, this specifically. And uh, and and they adapt those Fire Emblem gameplay elements into a Atlas style combat very smartly, I think. Um, so, but I want to ask you. Is there a kind of Fire Emblem character, or maybe a specific Fire Emblem character, like a favorite one, that you either love seeing in this game or didn't make it into this game? Like, uh, just just tell me a a kind of Fire Emblem character or class you like, and how you think they could have been in Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Do you follow? Uh, Kind of. Um, But one that's kind of missing is, Mm -hmm. only because Mami doesn't really fit, is is the Berserker character, but, but... Like, there is a Berserker class in Tokyo Mirage Sessions that Mamre can become, but it really doesn't suit what she's supposed to do. So mm-hmm. it feels kind of like it's just a very odd inclusion for Tokyo Mirage Sessions to have a Berserker, but that's the one character that's type is missing in the game as a whole. And the Mamre is also the only axe user. Yeah. Which, which is uh, another, like, something that feels missing. Like, I almost feel like Barry could have become, like, a second axe user. Well, um,. There's a couple kinds of axe fighters in Fire Emblem. There's the classic axe fighter, which usually uh, class changes to warrior. Then you have the bandit pirate axe fighter that usually class changes to berserker. And then um, a couple mountain u- mounted units like paladins and great knights and some and some cavaliers can wield axes. But you're right, it's a little bit missing. Um, the way that class changing works in Tokyo Mirage Sessions is every character has two possible class changes. And... Um, Mamaris doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, she's an armor knight and can class change to either general or berserker. And normally armor knights are either like generals or great knights, like heavily armored cavalry. Um, but they sort of decided to throw all of the axe classes in one basket and, and uh, give that to Mamari. She's really more like a general character because of her defensive skills, like like capital G general, not not like generic, <laughs> but but has stuff that would you would associate with a warrior or a berserker, and and is the berserker in the game. And you mentioned Barry. Um, in chapter four, when you sort of rescue Barry, they discuss how he was, um, he was part of the team in fighting mirages earlier in the story, but he lost uh, his mirage. And eventually after uh, Drag comes to his senses, he becomes Mamari's mirage. But I think Barry is the axe fighter, warrior, berserker type, especially when you, when you, um, in, I don't know if this was in the Wii U version, but in the Switch version, if you find a treasure chest in the EX dungeon, um, he can, yeah, he, he can join as an addition to your session attacks. And he is dressed in sort of a, in furs, like kind of like a Fire Emblem warrior. Yeah, so that wasn't in the original Wii U version. So right, um, mm-hmm. Maiko, Barry, and Tiki joining you for session tasks wasn't in the original Wii U version. That was only in the EX. They could find to the EX dungeon. Yeah, the- I mean they don't deal a lot of damage with their attacks, but that but that just getting extra numbers on your session combo is is very very <laughs> very very satisfying to me. So the, the yeah, I'm glad that's in the Switch version. Yeah, because. Otherwise, they didn't have a lot to do. Like, Maiko, Barry, and Tiki outside the side stories didn't really do a whole lot. Especially Maiko and, and Barry. Yeah, Maiko's uh, side story bonus, like, reduces prices in shops, which is ridiculous because I had, I think, almost you 10... You so much money. Yeah, I had almost 10 million yen at the end of the game. Like, I run out of things to buy. Yeah. Almost literally. So it's a... Uh, 
having them just be an extra hits in the chain combo, uh, I thought was was nice. And you mentioned that uh, last episode, you thought uh, Maiko was originally going to be in the game as a dancer, but um, I had assumed she would have been a thief or a rogue just because she fights with knives in her little combo thing. But her, you know, joining sessions as part of the combo wasn't even in the Wii U version, so that's a... Uh, Maiko and Barry are contributors, but only bar- barely. And, and and I think if Barry had been a main party member, he would have been like a warrior berserker, and Mamori would have sort of stuck to Armor Knight General. But that's not the only time they fold multiple archetypes into one character. Like, uh, Yashiro can become a swordmaster or a hero, and generally hero and swordmaster are often separate class lines. Like, mer- like you'll get mercenary into hero, and then Myrmidon into swordmaster, even though both of those... Myrmidon and Mercenary are basically similar sword fighter kind of uh, kind of classes. Subasa can be she be, starts out as a Pegasus Knight and then she can either be an upgraded Falco Knight or a Draco Knight or Wyvern Knight, which are often again separate paths in Fire Emblem games. So it's it, they do sort of fold different uh, character archetypes into Tokyo Mirage Sessions main characters. But the one archetype that I miss a little bit is hmm probably Thief. Like thieves are important in Fire Emblem because they unlock chests and doors, and that's a, sort of a key part of a lot of different Fire Emblem maps. And a thief will usually upgrade into uh, into an assassin, or uh, or maybe an upgraded thief, which is I think called a rogue uh, in some later Fire Emblem games. Um, Ellie does get an assassin upgrade; she can become a sniper or an assassin. Yeah, they kind of rolled it together. Yeah, they, they, again, they, they sort of fold, fold these different types into each other. And there's also no nomad characters. I really like mounted archers. I, I uh, In Fire Emblem games, oh, I, yeah. I don't use archers a lot because it, their positioning is awkward. If I want good range attacks, I'll either give someone a hand axe or use a mage. And yeah. if I and if I really want a bow user, I usually will go with a mounted archer, which is you know nomad in uh, the some of the GBA Fire Emblem games and just bow knight in uh, some of the later ones. Well, like like Astrid and Path of Radiance is a is a really really good cavalier who uses bows. But only three houses fixes a lot of that. Oh, they do. Archers, three houses archers are almost overpowered. Oh, nice. Back to the (laughs) um, back to the tactics ogre days where archers are almost a slightly broken class in the uh, in the middle of that game. But we're not here to talk about other strategy RPGs. They do have a lot of Fire Emblem imagery and and sort of style in this, even though it's sort of feels like an atlas rpg about uh, like i again i think i i mentioned this in the previous episode like the, this if you took away the names of the characters you wouldn't you might not even realize it's a fire emblem it's a it has fire emblem influence because it's just it's a atlas rpg through and through but the fire emblem references and characters uh make it a lot more fun uh in the final in the sort of first part of the final chapter the, the characters have to fight um, several previous Fire Emblem heroes to sort of get their blessing to um, defeat the, uh, the the dragon that destroyed the Fire Emblem character's world. And it's, um, uh, I, I mentioned Jagen a little while ago. Like, uh, Jagen is sort of the person that uh, that that uh, that Toma has to defeat. So when you you, you uh, have a boss fight against three Fire Emblem heroes, and one of them's Jagen, and uh, and at the end and after the fight, like Toma gets a little sparkly Jagen soul. It's Again, a lot of Fire Emblem references that make this game a little bit more fun for uh, longtime Fire Emblem fans. It is, unfortunately, it is only until like the last chapter where they finally, like, hey, well, yeah, I forgot this is a Fire Emblem game, and then we put all the references in here. 
Yeah, they really hammer it home in the last chapter. In um in uh, either end of chapter five or beginning of chapter six, uh, Tiki starts regaining her memories, and you have to go out to previous dungeons and find dragon stones, uh, th- like by going through gates that were previously locked. But then you get a skill that uh, allows you to break through some of those uh th- those sort of greenish white gates that uh, you see in previous dungeons. And uh, by finding dragon stone items, Tiki starts to regain her memories, and they sort of bridge the Fire Emblem World story and the Tokyo Mirage Session story a little bit. Hundreds of years ago, in the world of the Fire Emblem heroes, a uh, a, a sorcerer named Garnef uh, summoned an evil dragon named Medeus, and uh, the only thing that was able to stop Medeus was the summoning of the uh, of of a holy dragon named Naga through an event called the Opera of Light. So, and and, uh, and the current story is basically Garnef, the same evil sorcerer, managing to bridge the gap between worlds and uh, trying to steal people's um. Uh, capacity to perform a performa to uh, summon Medeus again, and so the the thrust of chapter uh, of chapter six and the end game is um, trying to recreate the opera of light that stopped Medeus, which it, which you know has you going through a dungeon that's in the Bloom Palace, and uh, like I mentioned a minute ago, sort of um, fighting a few boss battles against previous Fire Emblem heroes to sort of gain their blessing to perform the op- opera of light. Uh, things don't go exactly as planned, though, and uh, and that sort of sets off into the end game. But um, we skip chapter five a little bit. Um, Yashiro joins you for chapter five. That's the one with uh, we had Dark Yashiro shows up and then basically invites everyone to come and see his stage performance. Or whatever. Right, that's, that's it. Cool. And you 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 reuse the same dungeon that was in chapter three, but yes. uh, but you have to visit several previous dungeons and unlock the gates for the dragon stones, and then eventually you fight a a, a boss battle against Dark Yashiro. And you, they, they, you, it basically unlocks like new chambers in three or four of the, I think, yeah, th- well, four of the previous dungeons, but you only have to visit three. I think the, a fourth one just get, just takes you to some treasure rooms. Uh, and you have to do new, new puzzles within those dungeons, like, uh, uh, more visiting rooms and lighting torches in the TV set and more, uh, traveling between different, uh, through the maid outfits in the, <laughs> in the chapter one dungeon. And then also like going through the TV, the TV, uh, like dressing rooms in a certain order in the TV station. Yeah. And, and just basically just slightly more complicated versions of the original puzzles in those dungeons. But that eventually uh, has Tiki's memory return and gets you into a boss fight against the fake Yashiro. I think it's not immediately obvious, but um, it, the fake Yashiro sort of disappears after you fight him, but it's, it's that TV producer who's the manipulator behind the whole thing, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the uh, general producer for like all these like big shows around... To- yeah, yeah, he's he's a famous producer in the world of this game. What was his name again? Oh, I forget. He's uh, uh Hatanaka. As a Hatanaka, and you can tell Yashiro suspects it's Hatanaka because um of of his manner of speaking, uh right before you fight Dark Yashiro, and in the Japanese translation, it's because uh he uses the pronoun Boku instead of Ore because Yashiro is an Ore guy and this Dark Yashiro is a Boku guy, both masculine ways of saying I in in Japanese. But uh, I forget how they translated it. The fake Yashiro uses like calls the uh, uh, the team darling or something, and then Yashiro's like, "I'd never say that." Pretty good localization choice. Eventually, in the next chapter, you learn that uh, Hatsunaka has been working with Garnef. He was sort of Garnef's vessel for organizing this art, this uh, this dark opera to summon Medeus. And uh, Hatsunaka attempted the same thing five years ago, but Yashiro's father, Performa, was strong enough to prevent it from occurring. This is their new their new attempt, and they're uh, close to having it complete. And uh, right before 
the final trial to uh, get the blessing of the previous Fire Emblem heroes where um, you are, I presumed I was going to have a battle against Marth. The only character who hadn't gotten one yet was Itsuki. And of course, if you're, if Itsuki has a Fire Emblem one analog, it's Marth. But instead of battling Marth and getting his blessing, you see uh, Hatsunaka and Garnef sort of like snap Marth's soul, snatch it out of the air. And then you have a boss fight against against Hatsunaka slash Garnef, which ends in them dying, but still being able to summon Medeas. And the and the second half of chapter six is going to the Cosmic Egg Stadium and fight and fighting Medeas at the end of the longest dungeon of the game. So, uh, what did you think of Hatsunaka? Uh, because he was so weird and so obviously fake, clueless. I kind of suspected him from the beginning. I. It was almost not a surprise to see that he was one, uh, one of the main villains from behind the scenes when I when I uh, when I got to chapter six. Yeah, because of how often he just kind of just shows up. Like maybe chapter two, you didn't really suspect, but uh, once he starts appearing after almost every single incident that happens, you start to suspect him a little bit. Not even chapter two. You run into you run into him in chapter one in the dungeon with all the all of the maid dresses. Yeah. Yeah, but like yeah. Even you, then, I, I assumed that maybe he was just got lost or whatever. But. Yeah, yeah. In chapter one. I maybe didn't suspect him, but pretty soon after he keeps showing up, it's like, okay, this guy has is has something up his sleeve. And I, I wasn't surprised when he ended up being a villain. But I, I was a little surprised that his motivation was he just wants to put on the best show ever. And he thinks that a dragon dest- uh, destroying the entire world would just be the, the greatest show of all time. And I'm, I'm thinking peak like, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, peak entertainment was the uh, was the words they used. And I'm like, well, okay, this guy is... um either the biggest hedonist or the biggest nihilist ever, or possibly having those two things bleed together. Um, it's really interesting, uh, theory on the, on his motivation, but it's, uh, yeah, no designs on world domination, no desire for control or for material wealth. He just, uh, wants peak entertainment. You know, I was just trying to think what kind of villain, like what kind of thoughts are to be running through your head to imagine that, like destroying the rest of the world would just be like the greatest thing ever and everyone will love it. Yeah, I'm not sure whether he's chaotic, neutral, or chaotic evil, but definitely chaotic because that's uh, that's not the most predictable or common motivation in a villain. I mean, it's almost like the uh, that like Kefka or Joker thing. Some people just want to watch the world burn. But yeah, Hatsunaka. I don't maybe not the, either Hatsunaka nor Garnef. I don't think is the most compelling villain. Um, I, I like Garnef as actually connecting the Fire Emblem world to the Tokyo world. Uh, and, and, you know, giving Tiki something to do other than make me weapons and skills. But, uh, I, I thought the more interesting part of the Fire Emblem half of the story was, uh, your connection to these Mirage characters and their connections to other Fire Emblem characters. L- l- like those fights in the trials and, uh, several of the fights inside stories, you're fighting classic Fire Emblem, uh, you know, archetypes that I, 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 I was really uh, entertained by. I, I think that a lot of the best dialogue and best character moments in the game are from these side quests. And I, I completed yeah. all of them. And I think that any player of this game probably should, because that's where I got a lot of the most fun. Uh, some of the side quest tasks are annoying, like I'm killing 10 of a certain enemy. Uh, I, I definitely didn't relish doing that. But getting all this uh, dialogue and character development and um, tangible new skills and abilities, uh, I thought were great side quest rewards. Uh, did you have a favorite character side quest or uh, a favorite moment in one that yeah that uh, is worth bringing up? Um, I'm trying to think back to everyone's side story. Um, I kind of like the development that that Mamori goes through with with hers because she's like the start of it. She's kind of like 
unsure of herself and like not really confident enough to speak up for herself because now she just has, she kind of just goes along with the flow of what adults want. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, Mamori's only uh twelve or thirteen, right? Oh, 11. Uh, 11, yeah, not even. I, made the, I think I made the same age mistake in the previous episode, but it has been a few yeah. weeks since we've recorded. But um, but you're right. She's basically a talented child who definitely wants to perform. She's not being forced into any of this, but uh, just sort of just does what the adults tell her to. And um, and and in her side quest, she asserts herself. She just learns to gain like the confidence to speak up for herself and not always be swayed by what others want. In the final stage of her side quest, every character side quest is three uh, events. In her final one, her producer wants to introduce a new gimmick, and maybe it's her cooking with an oven, maybe it's her playing with mascots, and they, they, they basically keep tugging her around in different directions, and she basically puts her foot down and shouts, Hey! I want to sing on my show! And so she does, and you get a little, you get a nice, uh, uh, singing performance, uh, because again, sometimes this game rewards you with anime music videos. And, uh, and also she, uh, she loves singing en- Enka, which is a form of Japanese ballad that I know very little about. I, I only know it exists because of the, of a Persona 4 side character and an old Mega Man villain. So Mamori, like you said, is, um, her side quest is about her gaining confidence and asserting herself. And it's a, and it's really good character growth that you really don't see otherwise. Um, and in Barry's side quest, part of his is about his relationship with Mamori because he, uh, he, you know, he's connected to all of, to the entire team as their primary vocal trainer and dance trainer, but he definitely likes Mamori the best. <laughs> it's, it's not really <laughs> Just a secret. A little bit. Just it's a not little really a secret. <laughs> and in one of the strangest music videos in the whole game, if you finish Barry's side quests, he stars in it, co-stars in a music video with her about her singing about her, uh, her pet dog and Barry playing the part of the dog as a, you know, a large man in a dog costume. I always find that so weird. <laughs> that, that's, to me, that's the weirdest one. Agreed. <laughs> and like, I didn't mind when it's like, oh, I, uh, so the Barry Mamari duo comes up. Uh, I guess I'm going to watch them play in a dog costume for. 15 seconds before I get a special attack. Like, I, I I didn't mind it, but it is a little head-scratching. And Barry's whole character, as a fanboy that gets real weird about anime girls and Mamori, is, um, I mean, I guess harmless enough, because there are fans, uh, with that kind of behavior, you know, just, just fans of idols and of, uh, and of anime and the things like that. But it's still, it's still a little bit weird watching it play out. Uh, a Caucasian man in his... 30s or 40s going completely gaga over an, an 11 year old girl and an anime about witches yeah <laughs> like you're saying those people exist but it's like it still feels weird when yeah it's kind of role. uh-huh but i'm um, going back to character side stories uh they unlock by increasing stage rank which is uh which they get just from participating in extra battles. And this correlates to the support system in Fire Emblem, because as characters fight in close proximity with each other, they unlock support conversations, which are unlockable uh, dialogue sequences that give both characters bonus bonuses when they fight near each other again in uh, later in the game. And, uh, and a lot of support conversations are a lot of the character development in Fire Emblem games, because Fire Emblem won't give story shine to all 50-plus characters in the in the cast always. And some characters really only get, uh, really only get story dialogue in support conversations. And so, like, uh, you unlock these side quests kind of like Fire Emblem supports, but they give you specific skills and upgrades in battle that feels more like, um, confidant ranks or social link, uh, ranks in a Persona game. So they, like, take that Atlas made system and that Fire Emblem system and 
blend elements of both into these side quests, which I, uh, again, think are among the best parts of the whole of Tokyo Mirage Sessions. It's a very smart implanta- implementation of Atlas RPG stuff and Fire Emblem stuff. But, uh, of course, to the surprise of zero people in the audience, my favorite side quest was Toma's. Toma's Toma my favorite character. His dream is to become a hero in a Japanese superhero show. Uh, it's clearly tokusatsu and clearly uh, an adaptation of, of Kamen Rider, a very popular Japanese superhero show. They call this one Masquerader or Masquerider. Throughout his story, uh, there's a little boy who sort of is, is jaded and doesn't believe in superheroes anymore. And Toma promises that he'll become a, a hero just for this kid. And in the final stage of his uh, of his side story, a mirage captures that kid, and Toma has to go rescue him. And the battle to save the kid is against uh, Abel, um, the the sort of the green cavalier counterpart to Kane's red cavalier from uh, Fire Emblem Shadow Dragon. And defeating Abel sort of has Kane and Abel reconcile as bros, and Abel pr- pr- promises to protect the boy that uh, that you rescue for um, you know until further notice. So. The boy, <laughs> the little boy that's a, yeah. a bit of a brat in <laughs> Toma's side story uh, eventually becomes a Mirage Master of his own. But uh, Toma be- uh, becomes the star of the next Masquerader show uh, in his side story, which, again, is very Japanese entertainment. Like, whenever there's a new Kamen Rider or a new Red Ranger in a Super Sentai, it's always a guy aged 17 to 23 who's uh, a very specific kind of handsome who is sort of an up-and-comer, who's trying to get into acting or singing. Uh, it's always an actor like that. And uh, and Toma trying to be one of those and trying to get into tokusatsu is sort of fits that real that real world story, except uh, except mostly <laughs> in the real world they're not trying to become a <laughs> main character of a toku show. They mostly just they mostly want to have a career as an actor or singer. And toku is being in a Japanese superhero show is something that they do for a year <laughs> as a as a young person. Uh, and, and a couple you know Red Rangers and and Common Riders are now met, uh, important Japanese celebrities, but that's not always that's not always the case. But having a side story in Tokyo Mirage Sessions that was like that with a tokusatsu-themed side quest was just completely delightful for me. And especially since I really like Fire Emblem Cavalry, like, um, I, I use, I use Cavaliers in every single Fire Emblem playthrough, sometimes more than, than I should. Like, hmm, I guess the enemy has a bunch of horse slayers in there, but I'll throw my Cavalier in there anyway. <laughs> I don't know how that feels. Yeah, they, they, they got an axe and those, and those are spears. I'll be fine. But, uh, yeah, so that was my favorite side quest to the surprise of no one. Uh, Kyria's is about sort of like embracing her, her cute, her side that loves cute things and not, and not trying to put up a, a an icy front all the time. Subasa is about, uh, gaining confidence and try, and, um, and, uh, and becoming the star in a, uh, in a TV show and eventually doing a duet with Kyria. That's one of the better music videos in the game. Eleonora is about trying to break into Hollywood and eventually traveling to North America and starring in a, and a, and you're rewarded with the, uh, a new improvisation for her and also a, a trailer for an action movie that she gets to star in. We talked about Mamori's, uh, Yashiro is about, uh, sort of reconciling what happened to his father five years ago. Uh, his is a final battle against Lanku, the, uh, the sword master from Fire Emblem Awakening and, and him like meeting the ghost of his father, his father telling him he's proud of him and then sort of passing on, which was a, a, a real serious moment for one, <laughs> for one of these side stories. Um, in, 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 uh, Maiko and Barry and Tiki also have side stories. Tiki gets to experience, um, real world things like eating donuts and, and, uh, singing in concerts. And Maiko gets, uh, back into her modeling career and her side story. They, like, these are really, really good character moments. And I think a lot of the time more interesting 
than the main game itself, uh, which I've said a couple times. Whenever I someone's stage ranked progressed to uh, where I could unlock a new side story, I immediately dropped what I was doing and went and did that st- side story if I was able to. Yeah, like like learning more about the characters. Like it's like like you said, they don't get these moments outside of the the main story if you don't do them. So that's why I feel like it's just always an essential thing to do, especially if you like if you just want you just want new skills. Like it's always just fun just to come and hang out with these, these characters, right? Yeah, um, they give you a gameplay reward with new skills or or new passive abilities, and they give you a narrative reward by having just really good dialogue and really clever um story beats in these side stories. I, I think they're an essential part of the game. And uh, I, I guess I guess it's uh it's nine characters with three each, so so twenty seven sort of quest events that are among the best parts of the game. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, Itsuki does not have his own side uh, story, but. If you complete every side story quest, you get a cutscene at the end of the game where Maiko steps down as president of Fortuna uh, to to get back into her modeling career, and Itsuki becomes the new president, which is a little weird because Itsuki is definitely only eighteen or nineteen after the events of the story, <laughs> at the at the at the very at the very oldest. But I have to ask you, um, because I don't know the answer, but maybe you do. Uh, after Itsuki becomes president, he gets a costume where he's wearing a suit and tie. In a new game plus, can you fight within that suit and tie? I'm pretty sure you can. I honestly can't remember. Yes. Ah, oh, okay. I honestly can't remember, though. All right. I'm, in the next 48 hours, I'm starting a new game plus just to get Itsuki in a suit. <laughs> uh, because it's it's a nice... Uh, this game really gives you uh, a wealth of costumes. Um, every character has at least... I think I think Yashiro maybe only has three or four. Most of the other char- most of the characters have some in the neighborhood of eight to ten costumes. Yeah. And Tsubasa got like 20. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. They go really crazy with Tsubasa and Kiria, especially. <laughs> Um, those two even have a costume change in the, around the middle of the game with their with their regular streetwear, just to give you just to give them something new to wear. Um, and every character has uh, workout clothes. Um, every character that appears on Mamari's show gets an ape, uh, an apron. Uh, every character that has a music video where they have a unique costume, you get to wear that costume. Um, the Switch version in the in the dungeon exclusive to the Switch version gives you uh, at least one new costume for each character. Of course, when I once I unlocked the common rider, I'm sorry, masquerader <laughs> Oga costume for Toma, I had him wearing it the rest of the game. I can see you doing that. Yeah, unsurprising again. And there were some DLC costumes uh, for in the Wii U version that I'm not sure are available in the Switch version. Maybe only in North America though. Um, the only ones that aren't, aren't available are the swimsuit outfits that uh, Kyria. No, sorry, no. I guess all the characters had swimsuit outfits. Mm-hmm. It was the only ones that are unavailable in the North American. I guess. I guess global version of the switch okay so yeah if you really really want to fight with everyone in swimsuits um i guess you'll be restricted to wii u dlc if you live in north america but i think um japanese actually it was taken out of the wii the wii u version for north for the west as well oh oh, okay so okay so you have to be playing it in japanese to play in swimsuits got it you know what i don't care i get to dress up as a fake common rider and that's what's most important of all (laughs) <laughs> and so if, if I if I were to replay this in New Game Plus, and, and I might, I'm not I'm not sure, even though I, I don't do a ton of replays uh nowadays, uh it's definitely gonna be Eats Key in a suit. Because I'm I, I when I saw when you he dresses up in that in the in the, the option in the end game cutscene, it's uh I'm I'm like, huh, that, that that's the best option available for him. That that that's a nice looking suit. <laughs> Uh, and, and also in the end credits, Itsuki finally gets a solo song because he does the by far the least performing of any character in the game. But uh, the end credits is like Itsuki finally getting his own song and uh, sort of the rest of the talent agency being sort of proud of him for it. <laughs> yeah. One more thing I noticed in the credits. 
Satoru Iwata is li- Iwata is uh, is listed it, near near the very end, and that and that made me sad a little bit. It's like oh, it's like oh yeah, this game was made before he before his untimely death. That's oh now I'm now I'm sad. I think it's one of the last ones that uh, he was like I had Nintendo before. That that tracks because I, I I think this game came out in late 2015 in Japan and he died less than a year later. So I, I'm pretty sure he died earlier that year in 2015. Oh yes, yeah, so it was it was probably during yeah I think you're right. I think it was probably during the development of this game. But but still, seeing him listed in the credits was a uh, a, a a you know a little melancholy reminder for me. But um, running it back a little bit. Uh, in the final dungeon, which is a lot of teleporting platforms that uh, I, I was briefly confused by, sort of the uh, the second and third phases of this four phase dungeon had some had some twisty moments in there. Uh, you 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 refight several previous bosses, but tuned to levels in the 40s instead of levels in the in the tens and twenties, and then you finally fight Medeus, but. In order to get to yourself to a level where you can fight Medeus, you have to perform the Opera of Light. Um, oh, yes, the best song. And <laughs> it, it's the best cutscene in the game. Holy crap! It's it, they, they it's it's a pop chorus version of with four on the floor and a disco beat and everything of the Fire Emblem main theme, and it absolutely rules. It is going to be the outro music of this podcast, one hundred percent guaranteed. Oh, perfect! And um, uh, it, it, it's like I, I had been told about it ahead of time. Like when I met, I think when I, I mentioned I was playing Toki Mirage sessions to uh some people in Fire Emblem, and then they like <laughs> either Steph or someone else just exploded into the Fire Emblem chorus. <laughs> Because, yeah. <laughs> because this is, it's, it's a bit of a notorious famous part of this game, the Fire Emblem song, and it's, uh, it's really good. It did not disappoint. Uh, and, and you, and it's, it's all seven characters plus Barry and Maiko and Tiki singing, to, uh, singing together, which is, uh, which is, uh, you know, a moment. It's just really great cutscene. I almost wish it was in more places in the game than just one fight. Yeah, like, I almost feel like that's that kind of like hype moment of the game where, like it all comes together. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's like how a, a lot of games have a Final Fantasy IV moment where uh, people they met along the way sort of gather their strength to inspire the heroes to victory. This, this was kind of that big denou- denouement moment at, at the climax of the game, and it was just a really great one of those, like really cool hype moment uh, just before the final battle. And um, the final battle itself was um. Yeah, I, I guess probably the most intense fight in the game. Like I was playing on normal difficulty, so none of the fights were that were that hard, unless I got an unlucky enemy session or unlucky en- enemy critical hit. But it was a cool final battle. Uh, I, I used Toma and um, and Yashiro and had a lot and just had used a lot of SP skills and um, and just and just went completely drained my item inventory of my strongest stuff. Uh, but it was it was a, a, again it's a lot of fun. This is a game that is. Just rock solid mechanically as an RPG, so the boss fights kept me on my toes enough to at least have to be careful and uh, were entertaining in its execution all the time. This is just a great RPG, and uh, but but to get slightly more negative than uh, the, the, the things I dislike the most about this game, I want to play another game of fair or unfair. Uh, so I'm I'm going to list a few of my niggling complaints, uh, and I want you to tell me if they're uh, if they're fair. Okay! Like you agree that these could be downers or unfair. Predictable! Am I, am I nitpicking a little too hard? Can you, can you play that with me? Yeah, of course. Alright, so fair or unfair, this idol stuff and Japanese entertainment stuff is very eye-rolling. And you have to, and because I, I don't, I'm not a huge follower of Japanese pop music, a lot of the stuff about the love of performing and the music videos I would unlock, sometimes I just would 
I wish there was less of it. Is, is that fair or unfair? Um, I would say unfair only because mm. this game is built around that. Predictable! Like, I know it's like, it's supposed to be this huge celebratory thing of the industry, so. In terms yeah. of like, like wishing there's less of it, I don't know. I think that would change the dynamic of this game quite a bit. I think that your, I think that your call of unfair is very fair. <laughs> because, uh, because I, I knew what I was getting into playing this. And, um, even though I wish there was less of it, I definitely expected this amount of it. So, again, themes of Japanese pop music do not always align with my tastes and preferences, except for the tokusatsu scenes, which are 100% my tastes and preferences. Uh, so, I, I think that's the right call on your part. But, okay, the next thing. I did not like how often I had to transport myself back to the Bloom Palace. Because when, whenever you whenever you find new performa from gaining stage ranks or sometimes in treasure chests, or whenever you can unlock a new carnage, again, carnages are weapons, by by finding enemy drops, you have to go back to the Bloom Palace, back at your home base, to uh, to forge these new skills or weapons. And unlocking skill, I like that you unlock a bunch of skills and weapons because that you know that that gives you that feeling of character growth. That's really that's really great in in many RPGs. So I, I'm not objecting to the wealth of skills that they give you, but I was annoyed that I was traveling back to town basically all the time. Is is that fair or unfair as a complaint? It's, that's totally fair. Okay. Because even especially when I played the original Wii U version, trying to go back to the Bloom Palace, that, that was that was like two loading screens that would take like like almost 20 seconds. Oh, so like, like that's like there, like to it, that's two loading screens and then back, which is another like two loading screens. So it would take like almost five minutes for me to go from, you know, I just collected this, this new performance to make weapons. And I go go back to the bloom palace. Then I got to go, you know, go through the loading screens, make the weapon, then go all the way back. It would take like forever. And it doesn't help that they give you the new drops. Like but when you fight new enemies, you get new drops. Oh yeah. When you, when you, but, when but you, those are always like right, like right when you start the chapter and you don't want to really go back to your home. Do you want to go back to Bloom Palace? Cause that's where you just were. Yeah. That, that that's one of my least favorite and favorite things of the game. Uh, when you're starting a new dungeon, every, let's say all of your weapons that you got from unlocks in the previous dungeon, they're all probably maxed or near maxed. So your first couple random battles in a new dungeon, you unlock a bunch of carnages cause you're getting new, uh, new enemy drops for the first time. And that's exciting because that, that's a bunch of stuff to unlock, but it's also a bummer because you've been in the dungeon for five minutes and you already have to go back to the Bloom Palace to get your new weapons. So yeah, again, <laughs> the push pull of dungeon town, dungeon town is, is less a feeling of survival, like in a 1980s Dragon Quest game and more just like a chore that is necessary in order to unlock new stuff. Um, and it's, it's better in the Switch version, like doing a, an early dungeon, uh, Bloom Palace run is probably closer to two minutes than five minutes with better loading times, but still a bummer. And I'm glad that I'm not, uh, alone in feeling that a little bit. Okay. And the, the last part of this, of this fair, unfair, um, game we're playing. Uh, I wish there was more to do in, in town. Um, because <clears throat> the, the game does crowds and the Tokyo downtown areas pretty well for the most part. I like how they fill, uh, the town with silhouettes that are not important characters just so that it feels crowded, even if there, are, even if there aren't that many people to talk to. And, um, th- there are a lot of side quests of like people that have lost their, wallet or whatever or uh people that need to be rescued from from evil mirages like this that stuff is fine but like there's a lot of things like storefronts and restaurants that only just heal you and there's only maybe two or three uh stores or shopkeepers that make a difference um i wish there was more to do in town uh because i was never really compelled to explore town unless it was to buy a new accessory or something um is that fair or unfair i wish they'd fleshed out 
the Tokyo setting a little bit more. Yeah, that's fair. Okay! Because, like, the only reason you have to go to certain places is if you want to buy something, and there's not much to do otherwise, because, yeah, all those various, like, other places you can visit, they're all for, you know, healing yourself. And the healing effects aren't really, like, that important. They increase the character's luck, but they never explain what luck does. Yeah, I, I think because... I think luck affects dodge rate and critical hit rate, uh, at, least if it, if it, at least it does in most of the old-school Fire Emblem games I've played. But, uh... All of the food just heals you to full in this game. There's not, there's, there aren't uh, special bonuses other than semi-random luck boosts. And there are vending machines everywhere, including in your home base. So I would, I would get something out of the vending machine in my home base to heal my party all the time. And there was never a reason to visit the cafe or visit a restaurant unless I had to for a side quest. Uh, whether it was a, a character side story or just a random, hey, I've lost my cat kind of side quest in, in town. So. Yeah, like I, th- I like how they did. I like how large they have Tokyo feel. I like the sort of crowd and set design of um of the the town areas in this game. But I just wish they gave you a little more to do. And there's some just useless town areas. Like the, the rooftop is really only for Toma's side quests, and the classroom set is really only for Ellie's side quests. And they probably could have cut those from the game. Like those 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 yeah. two those two zones are almost useless. It's it's funny because uh, I I don't remember this from the Wii U version, but I remember. Uh, the start of Ellie's first side quest, she has you meet in Shibuya, mm-hmm. and she then she just tells you to go to the classroom. Because I remember in the Wii U version, I think she told you to meet her at the classroom. I don't remember meeting her in Shibuya first. So it was, it was almost like they could have cut out the classroom part and just have you just meet in Shibuya, because you just end up going there anyway. I think they could have cut out the classroom and the rooftop and just made those different places in Shibuya. And again, Shibuya is the big downtown area where almost all of the town stuff takes place in. There's also Harajuku, which has a couple extra stores and the uh, and the character arena. And uh, the observer, the observatory area, which is a, uh, I don't know, just a, uh, like a, a special place to visit downtown. The classroom and the rooftop don't have dungeons, only uh, they feel useless, and there isn't a lot to do downtown unless you have a specific reason for a side quest to go there. So, like, all right, I'm glad I'm not crazy. I got, I got two fairs and one fair unfair out of you, which is, uh, which I think is um, a fair presentation of my criticisms with this game, which I ultimately really liked. Again, the RPG mechanic stuff is really satisfying. Um, as a longtime Fire Emblem fan since the 2003 Game Game Boy Advance game, uh, I, I loved the references I noticed, and the even especially the elements like how the combat and skills in Tokyo Mirage Sessions resembled something in an old Fire Emblem game. I thought that w- that was uh, really fun every time I, I noticed or experienced something like that. And um, class changing is really satisfying when you when you you get when you get a visual upgrade and a gameplay upgrade. It's it's one of the best things to feel in an RPG. And things like the abundance of skills and the abundance of costumes and all the optional content in the story, it, like all of this is great. This is a rock solid RPG that um I I I felt was worth my investment of fifty hours or so. So so I have two final questions for you before we close up shop. Nathan, how likely do you think a sequel is of this game, and what is something you would like to see out of a sequel, if one were to exist? Um, I think they were thinking about a sequel before this game released, but then, of course, I'm assuming the numbers probably weren't not nearly high enough to justify a sequel. Yeah, um, when I was doing a little bit of side research, this game was uh, slightly underperforming. Um uh, maybe because of the Wii U's low sales, uh, maybe for other reasons. But uh, the, the Wii U did uh, did not sell great, and the Switch port did a little better, but not, but nothing overwhelming numbers wise. Yeah, I still think it's because there's still like I guess I'll have to mention censorship now because that's the majority of the complaints I always see on social media whenever yeah. 
I dive into the comments section of this game is this game is ruined because it's been censored and all that stuff. And like, granted, I am against censorship as well, but in certain, in this case, it's like, well, in, the, in this, in this case, people like, can compl- keep people complaining about censorship, do not know what the word censorship means. This is not a government entity preventing the circulation of this game. And this is not any, any entity preventing the buying or selling of this game. This was a choice made by the publisher or by a localizer to, change visual elements of the game but then still sell it as as normal it's it's not that's not what censorship is they changed some of subasa's and i think maybe also curious costumes to be a little bit uh less revealing that is a, a choice that may be frustrating to people who wanted the original costumes, but that's not censorship but i i understand disliking that but i i, I don't care about it at all <laughs> You are right, though. Um, that discussion of censorship and the costume changes do dominate a lot of the discussion of this game online. I, I did notice that. Yeah, I think it's because of the primary audience of this. Well, I don't see the primary audience of this game, but basically what this is trying to appeal to. It's mm-hmm. almost like the, that, that kind of like super otaku-ish fan base that uh, you know, really likes their, the games that are untouched and pure and all that stuff. That's probably the reason why, but... Yeah, I'm, I mean, I mean, it, it feels like a puritanical decision um, on the part of uh, I'm not sure if it was Nintendo or Atlas or Sega or uh, or, or a localizer who um, who made that choice. Um, so I don't want to point fingers anywhere, but it, it does feel puritanical and maybe slightly self-sabotaging because, again, this is um, they should have they probably knew that the audience would would the opposite of embrace those changes. I think that's probably one of the reasons for like sales and because because this game is so anime influenced that it drives other people away from wanting to play it because they think it's just some weird anime game that, you know, always get those like really negative reviews and don't always, you know, appeal to like general fans. So that that's the part that always saddened me because this is actually a really solid game, but people stay away from it just because it's anime aesthetic and then people who like the anime aesthetic then get annoyed because it got censored. So it's kind of like this mm-hmm. weird niche of people who enjoy this game. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I think the developers are aiming very directly at a specific niche. And, uh, this game I think is great and probably successful for that niche. But then the, the decision to, uh, to change the international version betrayed that niche a little bit, which is again confusing and resulted in slightly low sales, which lead me to agree with you. I think that, uh, there won't be a sequel to this game, uh, unless it's into the far, far future where it, where being a sequel almost wouldn't matter anymore. Yeah, it's always the point where they do it for like the specific fans of this game, and it has to be a point where they can be like, we might lose a little bit of money on this game, but it's okay, we'll just satisfy like this group of fans, right? Something like that. That's the only reason I can see a sequel being made in the future. Makes sense to me. And now my second um, query to you. Atlas in the 2010s. Other than, I think, basically since Shin Megami Tensei 4, which is 2013, every game from there to the present has either been uh, Persona, Etrian Odyssey, or a remake of an older game, except for Tokyo Mirage Sessions. It's a it's an unusual step by Atlas to make something outside one of their major franchises. Going ahead, we know that uh, Persona 5 Scramble is, is being made, but that's by the Musou team. That's not part of At- of Sega Atlas. And we know that uh, we know about a couple of remakes coming up, and we know about Project ReFantasy and Shin Megami Tensei 5 are upcoming, possibly even later this year. But uh, Tokyo Mirage Sessions is an unusual step outside of of Atlas's comfort zone. I, I wish Atlas would make more games like this. Uh, Atlas's rather incredible PS2 output, which probably represented a sweet spot of um, development costs being a little low and their creativity being uh, being 
in a minor golden age. They came out with a bunch of stuff outside of Shin Megami Tensei, such as reviving the Persona series and making Digital Devil Saga and the Devil Summoner series. Um, Atlas had a really good early mid 2000s. And in the 2010s, they felt a little stale because again, it's only Etrian Odyssey, Persona, and remakes. Um, I wish they would uh, make more unique RPGs like Tokyo Mirage Sessions, and I, I and I'm sure you'd agree with me because I mean you you love this game, and uh, and and of course if if they were to make more games like this, it would be a a, a good chance of you loving an- another Atlas game. I mean Project Refantasy is the only project that feels similar to what TMS was in 2015. Uh, am, am I talking crazy here, or? Do you share my feeling that Atlas should maybe step out of the Persona box a little bit? Because I, I, I know you, you and I both enjoy Persona. Yeah. So, uh, so like we aren't trying to say stop making Persona games, but um, what, what do you think of Atlas's possible output in the 2020s? For me, Atlas is an old like it feels kind of a weird spot for Atlas right now because for whatever reason they, they usually I feel like Atlas had a game coming out every year, but now all of a sudden it's slowed down to like. One maybe one every two years. Like, no, no, that that's definitely not true. They, they they've had three or four releases basically every year um, s- since the early 2010s. But again, they're almost all remakes uh, or Persona spinoffs or a new Etrian Odyssey game. They're like maybe not every single one is on their radar. But let, let's uh let's look at Atlas's um output in uh pick a year from 2015 to the present. Straight 2016. 2016. Okay. In 2016, they released four games. The remake of Odin Sphere, uh, the uh, expanded remake Shin Megami Tensei IV Apocalypse, Etrian Odyssey V, and that was the Japanese release date of Persona 5. So again, uh, a bunch of remakes and a new Persona game, <laughs> and a new Etrian Odyssey game. That's basically every year, between three and five releases, but mostly within those boxes. And it's not at the level of output that they had during the... PlayStation 2 and DS heyday, where they were releasing games like crazy in the late 2000s. Um, but uh, so their output has gone down a little bit, but the output is also feels more stale to me because of the abundance of remakes. Um, I, I'm not trying to disagree with you or uh, or or uh, hammer your opinion, but I, I I want to see some more creativity of Atlas in the 2010s. Is the is the point I'm very very uh, rambling about making. Mm, they just want to see everything more original, right? So, like, I mean, I mean, instead of having only Persona and Etrian and remakes, maybe throw in a Tokyo Mirage Sessions every couple years instead of once a decade. <laughs> yeah, like, like I think a lot of people would appreciate like Atlas going a little bit outside the comfort zone. It's just a question that I almost feel like of will they? It yeah, feels like Atlas is a little bit stuck. Right now. Again, um, Project Refantasy is exactly that step outside that pattern that I appreciate, and I hope that game's great. Um, but we don't even know what system it's on yet. That this is just I'm just using this as a bit of a platform to be wistful about old Atlas. You know, back back when their logo was slightly different. <laughs> uh, when Atlas was absorbed by Sega, that wasn't a failing on Atlas's part. Um, their their parent company uh, basically tanked, and Atlas was a desirable asset that uh, that evidently multiple companies were bidding on a little bit. With uh, Sega ended up, ended up winning, so um, there's no danger of Atlas going out of business. They seem to be a successful game maker with a lot of fans, especially with an RPG fans audience. We we uh, uh, Persona and Shin Megami Tensei stuff always does really well when uh, when we make content about it. But yeah, um, I wish the best for Atlas and making more games like Tokyo Mirage Sessions would make me very happy, even though I would prefer it, w- it had slightly less anime pop music in it. But to, e- to each their own, right? Yeah. 
For me, for example, I'd love another game like this. <laughs> That's exactly this. Uh, you've heard it here first. Nathan wants more anime pop music in Shin Megami Tensei Five. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not Shin Megami Tensei Five. I think it might <laughs> actually have an aneurysm. Oh man! What you don't want to see? Uh, you don't want to see, say, Mara or Kokoryu like perform oh a perform a duet. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the image of Mara and just trying to imagine a J-pop theme. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Okay. If we're def- if we're talking about um, Shin Megami Tensei demon penises, then it's definitely time to end the episode. Thank you so much, listeners, for accompanying us on a two-episode journey through Toki Mirage Sessions, a game that Nathan loves and has played four times, and a game that I really like and have played once. So it's uh, it comes recommended by both of us. If you are listening and haven't played this game, I'm a little confused, but it comes recommended. But next week, we're having a special episode on playing video games and mental health. It's a topic that is near and dear to several people on RPG Fan, and uh, there was a lot of eager panelists for that episode when we, uh, were, um, when we were sort of devising the idea. An episode all about mental health next week. And uh, later in April, we are doing one episode on Castlevania that is still in the planning stages and two episodes on Soul Blazer, the uh, RPG made by um, Quintet for the Super Nintendo many, many moons ago. Uh, I don't think I'll be on that episode because I have other plans in April um, so, and I probably won't be able to leave my house very much during <laughs> during those plans. But uh, that's what's coming in April. But, uh, you know, this is the first episode of April, so I think we can talk about May a little bit. May's official Retro Encounter game is Mother 3, the Japan-only um, sequel to Earthbound for the Game Boy Advance uh, that came out more than 15 years ago. But it does have a fan-made translation on the internet. If you want to find it, I suggest Google. And uh, we're going to be playing that fan translation of Mother 3 on the podcast in May. So please look forward to some Mother 3 on Retro Encounter. For some feels. Oh, yeah. That game is... I, I uh. Uh, I, I played that game probably 80% of the way through. Uh, I got my, this isn't really a spoiler, uh, sort of the, uh, MacGuffins you're looking for are, are these, are items called pins. And I got to, I think the sixth pin out of seven, but then the, uh, my college laptop that I was playing on completely crashed and burned and I lost all my progress. So I, and I never restarted it. So I have not finished mother three. Um, but I played a lot of it uh, a long time ago, and I'm really looking forward to revisiting it. And I'm probably going to start it up pretty soon. So, uh, listeners, look forward to some Mother 3 in May. But, uh, listeners, if you want to reach Retro Encounter directly, the best way to do so is email retro at rpgfan.com. And you can also comment on RPG Fan's message boards, uh, visit a Facebook page, visit our Instagram page, our Twitter page, our Discord server, our Twitch channel, something streaming every day. Usually multiple things streaming every day. And we also have three other podcasts, Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about music, although it hasn't had a new episode in a while, and Phoenix Edge about current events. Uh, Phoenix Edge is hosted every single week live on YouTube. They usually record on Mondays or Tuesdays. So, and if you want to uh, review us, uh, Retro Encounter, or those other three podcasts, you can review us on iTunes or Google Play or however you are listening to us. Please provide feedback. Uh, listeners, if you want to reach Nathan directly, uh, Nathan, how should they do so? Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am at SmashGang27. And on our Discord server, if you want to join that, please do. Uh, I'm SmashGang on there. And listeners, if you want to find me on social media, the best way to do so is Twitter. I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs at other times. I am also Monsoon Mike on RPG Fans Discord, where I mostly get annoyed at people for their bad sports opinions. I think that's basically the conclusion of our duo art, although I uh, don't think if there was a duo art that lasted an hour 15 minutes in-game, fans wouldn't appreciate it. 
It would definitely be. Uh, I think it'd be fun, but it might just, you know. I, I would be. I would be hammering the skip button every time. <laughs> Thank you. Good night and good luck. Wow.